0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the pandemic is taking a toll on healthcare workers. We'll talk with a wellness expert about self care and ways to help those essential workers.
1: What we realize is that all of us feel all the emotions anger, fear, sadness. Over time, what we can practice is not letting that soak in so much that that becomes kind of the flavor of our soup of life
0: and the Chief of Surgical Oncology gives an overview of pancreatic cancer, including how it's diagnosed and treatment options.
2: Cat scans is much more common than it used to be. And so we're identifying a lot of these when cat scans are done for other reasons. And so we're we're picking up a lot of small and curable pancreatic cancers at this point.
0: All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore the diagnosis and treatment of pancreatic cancer with Upstate's Chief of Surgical Oncology. But first, a doctor who specializes in wellness addresses the importance of self-care for healthcare workers and other essential workers during the pandemic. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The pandemic has taken a toll on healthcare workers, including aides and technicians, doctors and nurses, and others. Many are working longer than usual hours in facilities that are more crowded than normal, all while a deadly virus circulates throughout the community. It's been a rough several months. Here with me to talk about self care and ways to help those essential workers is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, and the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. He's also a frequent guest on HealthLink On Air. Thank you for being here, Dr. Nanavati.
1: Thank you for having me, Amber. I appreciate it.
0: So let me ask for your advice. Someone who's getting off duty after 12 or 15 hours working, they're tired, they're hungry, they're full of all the stress from the the last 12 or 15 hours. What can this person do for themselves?
1: I think it's a great question. I didn't realize that you saw me leaving work yesterday. Um, uh, (laughs) Just kidding, actually. Uh, There are people who I know work a lot harder than, and a lot longer hours than I do as well. And we appreciate all of the efforts of all of our community members, both outside and inside the health system Uh, during this pandemic, uh, I think it's really important for people to understand some of the fundamentals of self-care. And part of it is a mindset, which is to take time to reflect on what you just did, which was provide great service into the community, Uh, you know, literally giving your heart uh, to take care of our community members. And I think when we have reflection and even take a few minutes to reflect, And even just simply something called, what we call an appreciation audit. Think about three things that were positive uh, in your life or for that day, and you can do that three times a day. So even on a long shift, you can take a few minutes just to reflect on what you've just done in helping somebody find comfort in their life. And that helps to take that weight off of us at times, Uh, especially when outcomes aren't always positive, we sometimes get stuck there. Uh, And what we realize is that all of us feel all the emotions, anger, fear, sadness, uh, frustration, guilt, remorse, um, and that's human to feel those feelings. Over time, what we can practice is not letting that soak in so much that that becomes kind of the flavor of our soup of life. And so how do we bring ourselves back? And that's with looking at a lot of the positives in our life, our relationships, our loved ones, and reflecting on what meaning and purpose uh, our work actually brings to our community.
0: So that sounds like something, you know, a person could make that sort of part of their habit as they're commuting or, or getting home from work, just to take that time to, to think about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's great, actually. That's a great point, which is, you know, uh, a lot of times what I tell my patients is take about 10 minutes in the morning or even before you get into work Uh, You can even just sit in the car if you want to, or in this cold weather, get inside, but don't quite go into your station and just take, you know, 10 minutes or even 10 deep breaths just to breathe in nice and slow, breathe out even slower. Uh, And by doing that, it has a calming effect. But in the morning, before your shift, you can set your intention for the day, right? Mine tends to be to give and to receive love unconditionally. People think about words like kindness, Uh, compassion, whatever word comes to your mind that you want to share as part of your work effort for the day. And at the end of the shift, what you can think about is take about 10 minutes or even 10 deep breaths to express gratitude for the day that was at work, uh, for the opportunity to be able to serve that we have, uh, and for the gift of the relationships that we have at work and the support that we get Uh, everything from leadership to more importantly, our peers uh, and the impact that we have on them and they have on us. In fact, this morning, um, you know, I sometimes post on some of the social media and this morning, uh, the post was actually very simple, which was to put a smile on, to make eye contact and to say good morning when you get to work, right? Uh, And the same thing can be said when we leave work, which is to put a smile on make eye contact and wish somebody a good evening or a good day, right? In doing that, not only are we sharing something positive, but in that moment, we feel it too, because putting a smile on, even if you fake it, lowers cortisol, the stress hormone, boosts serotonin, which is our feel good chemical. Neat.
0: Well, let me ask you, everyone's home situation is different, of course. We have some people with strong support systems and then some people who have to be other people's support systems. So, in terms of self care, are there things a person can do for himself or herself that will help the home be a place where they can relax and recharge?
1: You know, I mean, I I really appreciate this question, Amber. And, you know, I I guess I'm going to say it on air too. I appreciate you in these interviews because you know, you ask the questions that really matter. I mean, that's a real issue that so many people deal with, uh, which is either having more responses when you go home uh, or figuring out how to connect and kind of unwind, de-stress, bring your mind to that space versus this space. And what it requires is getting a little bit of closure. And you brought up the commute home. For some people, it may be as little as a walk for five minutes. For others, it may be an hour-long drive. But during that time, Uh, it's important to reflect, uh, and it's also important to recognize that we're ending this phase of the day, we're bringing closure to it, uh, and so that we can kind of leave it there and then bring our mind and our attention to that next period, next phase, right? Uh, In healthcare settings, it's sort of like when you're in the room with one patient, you want your mind to be there and give them 100% of your attention. And then in the next space with the next person, You have to kind of get closure before you move on to the next space and that's a practiced art Uh, so for people when they get home one of the important things a lot of times people think you know i work so hard i just wish i could go home and you know it could be valued versus you know putting the baby in my hand saying oh here you go you're home right or take out the trash or when's dinner going to be ready uh and the one of the pearls is when we get home simple thing we can also do is ask the others in our home how their day was, right? It's a great opportunity to connect and to also recognize that there's value on both sides of that equation, right? So, you know, when people work in a healthcare setting um, or in any out-of-home work environment, uh, and I'll give an example of my wife and I. My wife, uh, you know, has been staying at home uh, and raising our son. And so when I get home, it's easy for somebody to say, well, you know, he works outside the home. Well, you know what? Building a happy home is an important and difficult job as well. And so there's value in everything that people are doing. And when we recognize that value and bring that to the fore in conversation, now they're also more interested in asking how your day went. And so, you know, this is a classic saying of, You know give more of what you want and you'll get more of what you want in return Uh, and in this case it's about acknowledging and appreciating the people at home when you get there and just by simply doing that again smile make contact and ask them how their day was and it'll be amazing how the communication uh, is much more congenial but also respectful in both directions this
0: is upstate's health link on air i'm your host amber smith talking with dr koshal nanavati He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate, and we're talking about self-care for healthcare workers during the pandemic. Why is it that sometimes when a person is really tired, that's the hardest time that it is to fall asleep?
1: So we would think so. And, you know, we talk about, I'm so tired, I can't even get to sleep. And some of that has to do with hormonal shifts in the body uh, between things like dopamine and epinephrine and serotonin and and cortisol and what they have as an impact. And that's also why Uh, We want to try to create routines and patterns for ourselves uh, so that we don't get to that level. The other point is actually that sometimes, and some people in the listening audience may find themselves doing this, is you're really tired, but you don't want to go to sleep because you want those moments because you feel like, you know what, I wake up and I just work so many hours. I just need time to unwind. But sometimes that can actually be an early sign of burnout as well. Uh, And so, what we're actually doing, in a sense, is avoiding the thing that's going to be coming and hoping that we can extend this period a little bit longer, right? So, accepting our routine, and that's where, you know, expectation and acceptance are very interesting, because when we have expectations, sometimes we set ourselves up. And when we start to accept that in this phase, this is what's going to happen. So, during COVID, our routines have changed. And because early on, many of us had an expectation that, oh, this won't be around for too long, you know? And so we kept expecting it to end, wanting, wishing it to end. Uh, And so we kept getting frustrated that the end point wasn't there, the end point wasn't there, versus recognizing I've just got to focus on today uh, and I've got to focus on taking care of my own self and my health. You mentioned self-care, right? So the principles of the core four that we've talked about on this program are paramount, optimizing your nutrition, right? Uh, Getting physical activity and exercise, in fact, is a great way to de-stress and also to create a nice hormone balance in the body that allows us to get better sleep. Focusing on the things that we can do something about. We can't fix everything in the world, but what we can do is start with ourselves, right? I like to say a tree without roots provides very little shade, and so at least we can root ourselves in our own health. And when we do that, especially as healthcare providers, we're able to take care of more in a healthy manner versus feeling stressed and burnt out ourselves, right? Uh, and that leads to more contentment and a greater sense of peace, even during a distressing time such as this. Um, you know, and for me, I've had a lot of peace during this time in many ways, and people laugh and say, what are you talking about? And what I tell them is usually in healthcare, we're trying to do what we can to make it happen for the person to help them achieve their goals, their sense of peace and contentment. During COVID, the rules have been pretty straight for everybody, my parents, my wife, my son, my patients, my staff, you know, physical distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands, right, and be respectful, not just of others, but of yourself. Uh, And so that's made it so much easier because it's consistency that's been required of us, and that's something that we're learning during this time as well.
0: You know, you made a good point about uh, when this started. I mean, we still don't know how much longer this is going to be. So it's like we're in the middle of a, a marathon or an ultra marathon, but we don't know where the finish line is. So it's the whole idea of having to keep, you know, your stamina, and you and you can't just say, "Oh, it's only three more miles." I, we don't know how much longer this would be.
1: Well, and when we accept this as reality, and more importantly, recognize that you know, most often in life. We don't go back to who we were. We become something new based on our living experience, you know. So the day I walked out of my high school, I didn't go back, and nor have I been the same person since, right? And the same thing goes uh, with COVID, which is this experience has shifted a lot. The way in which healthcare is delivered, the way in which we value things. So you know, more people are valuing meaningful relationships and you know the health of their themselves and their loved ones even more so than the material things in life. And what we realize is for a lot of those material things, we didn't really need them as much as we thought we did because we've been able to manage without them. And that being said, we've also seen so much distress in terms of job loss, financial ruin, a lot of things that have affected a majority uh, uh, and actually a a large population uh, within our United States and around the world. And so we have to, as a society, reconfigure where we place value, What we teach the next generation in terms of creating a meaningful, purposeful life, one that's supportive of our community members versus one that, you know, uh, teaches you to, you know, step on each other, get to where you want to go. So going from the me culture to the we culture, I think COVID has really done something to teach us a lot about that.
0: In the very little bit of time we have left, I wanted to ask, have you talked with healthcare colleagues about how they're coping emotionally with the pandemic? I I wonder what sorts of emotions they're feeling.
1: I think, you know, healthcare workers are people too. I mean, it's a nice statement to say. And the reality is, is that uh, amongst healthcare workers, all emotions have been experienced, you know, fear, anger, frustration, sadness, grief, uh, hope, um, all of those things. And There's, you know, there's no one thing that everybody does, and it's really a menu of offerings, if you think about it, for self-care and well-being, uh, which is to say what brings you a better sense of contentment, what brings you a better sense of health and well-being. Those are the things you want to do, whether it's listening to music, dancing, exercising, writing, making a phone call, connecting with somebody, Uh, any and all of those things can bring value at different times. And whatever you feel that's healthy, I think is important. Dysfunctional behaviors have been seen also, including you know, increased alcohol consumption, um, increased uh, you know whether it be smoking or other illicit substance use. And unfortunately, those are the behaviors that don't lead to great outcomes, uh, not only at work, but in, in people's lives. And so I encourage people to look at the healthy approaches that they can take and start being consistent with them because that's how habits are formed.
0: Thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati, the assistant dean of wellness and an assistant professor of family medicine and director of integrative therapy at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Healthlink on Air. An overview of pancreatic cancer next on Upstate's Health Link on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Pancreatic cancer accounts for about 3% of all cancers in the United States, but accounts for 7% of all cancer deaths, and it's the fourth leading cause of death from cancer. Advances in the treatment of pancreatic cancer are offering hope, and today I'm speaking with an expert about this disease, Dr. Thomas Vandermeer. He's a professor of surgery at Upstate. He serves as chief of surgical oncology and as a pancreatic surgeon, and he's had extensive experience in the care of patients with pancreatic cancer. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Vandermeer.
2: Thank you for having me, Amber.
0: Well, Jeopardy host Alex Trebek was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when it was at stage four, and I understand most pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed at stage four. Can you explain the stages and why most people don't find out about it at an earlier stage?
2: Yeah, so um, there's four stages in cancer. Stage four is unfortunately what Alex Trebek had, and um, that's when the cancer has traveled to some distant site beyond the the pancreas and um, most commonly that's in the in the liver it can be into the lungs and into the abdominal cavity uh, as well Um,
0: so let me stop you if i can and interrupt it it, you say it travels the cancer does it go through the bloodstream or how does it get from the pancreas to other places
2: yeah so commonly goes through the through the bloodstream and then the, the blood from the pancreas drains into the liver and so that's uh, one of the main reasons for the propensity of pancreatic cancer to implant in the in the liver. Um, it also gets into the lymphatics, which are uh, fluid tubes that that drain fluid around the body, and so it can get into the system through uh, the lymph nodes that, that surround the pancreas as well.
0: Well, do we know why cancer starts in the pancreas?
2: Uh, cancer can start in really any cell because um, the me- basic mechanism by which cancer forms is through the dysregulation of the growth of the cell uh, usually through some uh, series of genetic changes that that cause uh, cancer to keep growing when normal cells would grow divide and then the original cells um, die back as the normal method of replenishment of the body, uh, cancer cells just continue to to grow and have uh, progressive changes that then cause them to spread um, into other places in the body.
0: Do we have any way to predict who is likely to develop pancreatic cancer?
2: Uh, We're starting to get some information about a few of the predispositions, although um, the vast majority of pancreatic cancers What we call sporadic meaning that that there really isn't any identifiable. Predisposition to them, uh, we are increasingly identifying genes that that can be present at the time of. of birth that cause an increased likelihood of pancreatic cancer. Um, but most of the genetic changes in pancreatic cancers are uh, acquired during during lifetime.
0: So. Are there risk factors that we can do something about that would help reduce our risk?
2: Yeah. So the the main um, behavioral risk factors are uh, smoking and obesity. Um, there are some environmental exposures to you know people who work with chemicals and things like that. But by and large, the mo- by far by far the, the most common risk factor is uh, smoking and obesity.
0: Well, wow, smoking again, even though pancreas, you think smoking with, I think smoking with lungs, but it can affect, I guess, cancer anywhere.
2: Yeah, because the, the things that, I mean, obviously the lungs are exposed to, to smoke primarily, but the, the changes, the, the, the chemicals that are introduced into the body as a result of smoking can really uh, cause mutations in genes in many different places in the body. So smoking in general, is is just a risk factor for many different kinds of cancer.
0: Well, getting back to the idea of the stage four, it's usually progressed before people discover it. Do you think there's ever going to be a way to screen for pancreatic cancer so that it could be caught earlier?
2: Yeah, that, we're, we're looking into um, all kinds of different ways of uh, screening people for um, who are at increased risk. And we, and we do know now that there are are uh, some genetic mutations, uh, you know, most commonly uh, what we call a bracket mutation, which is um, uh, present in a lot of patients with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And so we do screen them. Uh, currently what we're doing to, to screen people is uh, based on doing tests like CTs or MRIs. Um, there's a test called an endoscopic ultrasound where there's an ultrasound probe placed uh, into the stomach. and can really give us detailed views of the pancreas and can pick up on um, uh, tumors as they, you know, when they're very small. Uh, we also um, are looking into how we can look at genetic changes in the juice of the pancreas. So we can go down into the intestine with a scope and aspirate some of the some of the fluid and look at genetic um, changes and changes in the proteins that are that are present in the in the pancreatic juice. So that's a, a very active area of investigation. Um, that hasn't been really uh, elucidated yet, uh, nor have the uh, uh, populations that would be at sufficient risk to uh, undergo um, intensive screening. Um, so, uh, but it's something that we're working on.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Vandermeer. He's the chief of surgical oncology, and we're talking about pancreatic cancer. Now, I've heard there's two main kinds of pancreatic cancer. Can you tell us about them?
2: Yeah, the the types of cancer uh, tend to be divided into the type of cell uh, from which they originate, and so the most common type is what we call a ductal adenocarcinoma and that that's a cancer that arises from the uh the cells that line the ducts uh, that uh, transport the fluid that's made by the pancreas down into the intestine and that's the most common type that's the that's the danger the most dangerous type uh the um uh, by far and away the le- less common type is called a neuroendocrine uh, tumor and um and those are uh, generated from the cells that produce hormones like insulin and some of their hormones that regulate bodily functions. Uh, those are much, much less aggressive and, and uh, spread much less commonly. Uh, but even when they do spread, um, patients survive uh, long, long period—years and years and years—even with metastatic disease if it's originating from neuroendocrine carcinomas. Of the, um, those those patients also often have uh, symptoms of hormonal excess, so that the, the hormone that's made by those cells um, can cause things like uh, increased production of insulin or um, increased production of other hormones that um, have other effects on the on the GI tract. Um, but the prognosis from that uh, from those tumors is much much better.
0: So the the really bad one, the uh, you, I think you called it adenocarcinoma.
2: Yeah, the ductal adenocarcinoma.
0: So that's the kind that Alex Trebek had.
2: Yeah, that's when people talk about pancreatic cancer. That's by and large what they're talking about.
0: So how do people typically find out that they have this? Do they do they just at a regular annual physical? Is the doctor able to find something unusual, or how's how it usually discovered?
2: Yeah, it's not, it's not something that can be discovered on physical examination because the pancreas sits uh, deep inside the body, uh, really on top of the spine. And so, one of the reasons that that often pancreatic cancer. Presents uh, after it's is that it will grow without really causing any, any symptoms. Um, the, the main um, symptom that the people identify is jaundice because the, the duct that drains bile from the liver into the intestine runs through the pancreas. And if a tumor develops in that site, it will block the bile duct causing jaundice even when it's very small. So uh, when people get jaundice, that's, that's uh, frequently in a way that we detect these uh, early on. The other way is that, um, you know, having CAT scans is much more common than it used to be. And so we're identifying a lot of these incidentally when CAT scans are done for other reasons, and, and so we're we're picking up um, a lot of small and curable pancreatic cancers at this point.
0: So, if someone uh, has something discovered when they go in for a CT scan for for something else, or if they have severe jaundice, how do you go about making sure and diagnosing it is pancreatic cancer?
2: Uh, so, we we always try to get a biopsy. And that's uh, most often done with this endoscopic ultrasound test that I mentioned uh, a while back. Um, And that's where an ultrasound probe is on the end of a a scope that's placed in the stomach. And and a thin needle can be advanced uh, through the stomach right into the uh, tumor. uh, and uh, um, uh, The diagnosis can be confirmed that way.
0: So how do you decide what stage it's at? uh after you do the biopsy does that tell you the stage
2: um no the stage is determined um definitively after after the tumor is is removed if it's if it's operable if it's um and, but basically stage one is a very uh early cancer that is not spread to lymph nodes stage two is basically when it's spread to lymph nodes stage three is when it's um, either inoperable or it's uh, lymph node spread is is uh, extensive, but it hasn't spread to a different uh, organ like like the liver or the lungs.
0: Well, what can you tell us about the organ, uh, the pancreas, the organ in terms of does it matter where the cancer shows up in this organ as to you know what you're going to be able to potentially treat for the patient?
2: Uh, uh, to some extent, it does because um, if it if the- Cancer is in the area where it causes jaundice, and and that's a visible sign that draws attention uh, to the cancer. Those tend to be smaller and uh, we cure those uh, more often. Um, When when we do um, cure pancreatic cancer, it's when we do catch it early um, and um, and we're able to give chemotherapy uh, as well as surgery um, to address the
0: so I was going to ask in general what the treatment options are, but you just mentioned a couple of them: surgery and chemo. Um, I'm imagining it, it; it's different for every patient as in terms of whether you're able to do surgery or, or if you do that before or after chemo. W- what is what is typical if there is something typical?
2: Well, so that's um, the, the, that's a big question right now when we when we see uh, pancreatic cancer that we think is is. Awkward. Um, there is, um, a large study going on right now to determine. Whether or not, uh, giving chemotherapy before the surgery. Uh, improves, uh, survival, uh, or if doing surgery 1st, which is then the traditional way to do things is, um, is equivalent or, or even better. Um, so that's a big unanswered question. Um, and, and but the reason it's come up is because there have been some small studies that have shown that if we give chemotherapy. Prior to surgery, there are some advantages and, and one of those advantages is that it can. Uh, downstage the, the tumor it can it can make it smaller. And that makes the surgery more effective because um, it's less likely than that there would be some microscopic tumor left behind. From the surgery, the other benefit is that is that then we can see. When we look at the surgical specimen, um, what the effect of the chemotherapy has been. So if we give. Some chemotherapy before surgery. And then on the specimen, we see that there's been a really nice response and we know that, that that's an effective chemotherapy for that particular cancer. And that's what we would give after surgery.
0: So can you actually, in the operating room, can you see the cancer in the organ is visually?
2: Yeah, frequently we can. Uh, you know, we, we always try to uh, divide the tissue well away from the, the, the tumor uh, as far as we can get away from it, because pancreatic cancer tends to be fairly infiltrative. So we um, really just um, get all of the tissue that we can off of the vital structures, leaving nothing behind.
0: HealthLink on Air will be right back with more about pancreatic cancer from Chief of Surgical Oncology, Dr. Thomas Vandermeer. Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Thomas Vandermeer about pancreatic cancer. He's the chief of surgical oncology at Upstate, and we've been talking about treatment options for stage four pancreatic cancer. Can you talk about the stroma and what's being done to get treatment through the stroma?
2: Now, the stroma is a very interesting thing. So, the stroma is um, really divided into, into three parts. There, uh, and, and what stroma is is, is the uh, area around a tumor, which in pancreatic cancer tends to be very thick. That it, it generates a lot of scar tissue around it, and that's one of the things that makes it difficult to treat, um, because that uh, those thick um, scar-like proteins uh, prevent the infiltration of chemotherapy uh, in, into the into the tumor. Um, so that's one aspect: is the scar tissue around it that makes it very challenging. Um, the, uh, 2nd part of this drama is the vasculature, the blood vessels um, that uh, cancer causes blood vessels to. To develop it's secretes hormones and the blood vessels develop and that's 1 of the uh, pathways. of Metastasis, like you mentioned earlier. So, uh, what the cancer will do is it will generate the scar tissue that makes chemotherapy difficult to infiltrate. And then it generates a lot of blood vessels that give the cancer a route. Out of the primary site and into the bloodstream and to, to other organs, and then the third component of it are uh, cells that that treat the, the, the stroma, um, and and there's different types of cells, and there's um, cells that uh, kind of encourage tumor growth and these cells that discourage tumor growth. So these are all, as you can imagine, active areas of, of investigation because if we can say, for example, get the um, uh, protein around the tumor to allow the chemotherapy to, to enter, then um, chemotherapy can be much more effective. Uh, the stroma also prevents uh, uh, infiltration of uh, tumor-killing uh, lymphocytes, which is uh, really a big area of investigation and success in a lot of other uh, cancers that hasn't been as effective in, in pancreatic cancer. Uh, because there's this barrier to the to the the body's own immune cells to get in to attack the pancreatic cancer. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, work being done to look at how we can break down that stroma so that, that these uh, cancer killing cells that are in the body can can do that.
0: Now, what about molecular profiling? Are you using that?
2: Uh, yeah, very, very much so. We're, uh, as I mentioned, increasingly understanding the genetics of pancreatic cancer, and we're getting to the point now where um, we know that certain um, genetic profiles will predict uh, better response to treatment for different types of uh, anti-cancer drugs. Um, uh, in, other, in other types of cancer, these immunotherapy drugs and, uh, that are based on specific ge- genetic profiles have been uh, incredibly effective and have actually really reduced uh, mortality rates and things like lung cancer um, we haven't gotten to that point in pancreatic cancer um, for uh, because these tumors tend to elude the immune system
0: so when do you recommend having relatives tested for hereditary pancreatic cancer does every pancreatic cancer patient need to have their family members tested
2: um, no, the uh, you know as I mentioned, most pancreatic cancers are are sporadic and not part of a, a, a family familial syndrome, and so that just having one uh, first degree relative have pancreatic cancer does increase the the likelihood of a of, uh, first degree relative having pancreatic cancer, but um, not to the but not to the degree that screening would be. Um, effective. Um, we also don't have really great screening mechanisms, um, so it's not currently recommended. Screening is enhanced. Screening is recommended uh, for um, patients who have uh, uh, BRCA two mutations mm-hmm. and uh, and other uh, similar mutations. Um, there are rare um, uh, genes that um, predict familial um, pancreatic cancer and familial pancreatitis, which is an inflammatory condition of the, of the pancreas. And so um, people with those specific uh, genetic syndromes, and there's about 10 or 12 of them um, that are uncommon, but if present, uh, do warrant uh, screening.
0: And you mentioned BRCA, that's the breast cancer gene.
2: Yeah, so, to, but only BRCA2, BRCA1 okay. Is the is the more, is the more common breast cancer gene.
0: Now, what do you suggest in general for people um, who've been given a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer? Is it worth it? Do they need to get a second opinion uh, to make sure?
2: Um, I don't think routinely patients need to get a a second opinion um, about the the diagnosis um, uh, unless they're Treating physician thinks that there's a reason to, to doubt the diagnosis. It is a, a fairly straightforward diagnosis for a pathologist to to make. But if there is discordance between the clinical impression and the pathologic impression, then by all means, I have seen occasionally where a biopsy will show a pancreatic cancer, but clinically we don't think that that's accurate, and, and so we do always send that out for a second opinion. And, Sometimes not rebiopsy. biopsy.
0: Well, if someone's being treated for stage four pancreatic cancer, they know they have it. Does the pancreas still function and do what it's supposed to be doing, or does the cancer prevent the organ from working?
2: Uh, it, it can certainly prevent the organ from working properly. And what the pancreas the pancreas has two main functions. Uh, one is to to make hormones like insulin. And so frequently in patients with pancreatic cancer, insulin production is compromised. And um, and about two-thirds of patients who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer um, will um, have uh, uh, new onset diabetes within the past year of the diagnosis. Um, and so uh, many of those patients do require uh, control of their blood sugar. Uh, and then the second uh, function is uh, digestive one. And, Pancreas makes the digestive juice. It helps us break down our um, fat and protein in our diet. And, uh, and if that um, uh, transit of the pancreatic juice from the pancreas into the intestine is blocked by the tumor, then people have pancreatic insufficiency and fat malabsorption and weight loss just on that basis.
0: Well, Alex Trebek was able to, or he appeared on Jeopardy and, and d- did the recordings all through his treatment up until, you know, a few days before he died. So it makes me wonder, are I mean, are people not in pain when they're dealing with this? Are they able to go on about their lives? Or was that unusual for him?
2: Um, you know, I think that, that um, when people are at end stages of, of pancreatic cancer like Alex Trebek was, um, they typically are not as healthy as, as, as he was. Um, and um, so I would not say that, that his experience is necessarily typical, um, but the symptoms don't tend to be related to pain so much as they do to uh, fatigue and uh, weight loss and um, just sort of uh, generalized gradual uh, failing. He was certainly remarkable in many ways.
0: Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith. I'm talking with Chief of Surgical Oncology Dr. Thomas Vandermeer about pancreatic cancer. So we've talked a lot about stage four, but what are the treatment options if the cancer's contained to the pancreas? Because I'm thinking surgery is maybe more of an option if it's caught earlier, right?
2: Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, so, so uh, we always look uh to see if we can remove the the tumor surgically. um the reasons that we uh may not uh think that surgery would be helpful would be if it's spread to another organ um or if it's not possible because the the tumor is growing into um arteries and veins that that render it uh, inoperable um in the in the second case we will often try to uh, convert uh, that tumor into something that we can't operate on. And with improvements in chemotherapy, we're seeing that happen much more often than, than we used to. Um,
0: it does. Could someone ever uh, seek a pancreas transplant? Is that ever used to treat pancreatic cancer?
2: Uh, no, the, we, 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 uh, pancreas transplant primarily used for uh, patients uh, with either um, severe type one diabetes, uh, or patients who have had uh, severe destruction of their pancreas from pancreatitis. Um, and, um, and in that case, they get uh, a, a transplant of just the insulin cells. Um, but uh, during transplantation, uh, immunosuppressive medications have to be given, and those actually encourage the, the, the growth of, of cancer.
0: I see. So, the surgery, potentially, you could remove just the tumor or tumors, maybe. Do you ever remove the whole organ or part of the organ?
2: Um, yeah, typically, uh, what we would do is um, one of two operations. If if the um, cancer is is present in uh, one part of the pancreas, we remove that entire kind of part of the pancreas. Um, it's a uh, if it's present in what we call the head of the pancreas, then there's a lot of structures kind of coming together in that area, all bladder and the bile duct and part of the intestine. Um, so we do remove um, portions of the pancreas in order to be able to get all the way around the tumor and have no microscopic tumor present at the edges.
0: I was going to ask you to tell us about the Whipple procedure. I've heard that's a really challenging surgery. Is that what you just described?
2: Yeah, the, the Wilbur procedure involves remo- removing the, the head of the pancreas, first part of the intestine, the bile duct and the gallbladder and then the reconstruction of that um, requires uh, us to join three areas together. We So the uh, residual intestinal tract to the pancreas, the bile duct and the end of the stomach. Um, and that's a challenging operation for uh, people to get through uh, mostly because of uh, gi function um the, the the stomach doesn't function normally at first after after that whole anatomic rearrangement um, people do get back to eating normally and, and the quality of life returns to normal uh, after the Whipple procedure um and uh, actually we did a study a number of years ago where we compared quality of life six months after whipple procedure to uh, an open gallbladder operation and uh, quality of life would return to baseline in, in, in both groups.
0: So in surgery, whether it's the Whipple procedure or another technique for someone who, you know, it was maybe caught early in, does that remove the threat of pancreatic cancer coming back later?
2: No, unfortunately, at this point, it, it, it doesn't remove it entirely. Um, we are seeing increased rate what we think are um, cures in pancreatic cancer. Um, but um, unfortunately, the, the way things stand now, the majority of the patients still do recur um, after surgery, um, but um, uh, surgery along with chemotherapy really does extend life quite a bit
0: so patients that have gone through um, surgery for this, are they followed um, regularly to make sure it doesn't come back? Or who who would be their, their primary doctor? Or who would they see for that?
2: No, so, so uh, they, people are followed very, very closely um, every three months at, at first. And the way that we uh, check on things is by getting CAT scans of the chest, the abdomen, and the pelvis because the cancer can recur in any of those areas, um, and then there's a blood test too that that uh, is is a protein that we can measure in the blood that is produced by pancreatic cancer, and so we track that very carefully. In terms of who does it, it's um, usually the, the surgeon and the medical oncologist, the um, doctor that gives the chemotherapy, uh, follows uh, along uh, with the patient together, and then it's also important to. Um, have a whole team put together of uh, nutritionists and um, and uh, you know. Increasingly, we focus on what we call survivorship, which is 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 how you manage things after you've kind of come through your treatment and you're cancer free, and you have this intense focus on on how what am I going to do about this cancer, and that goes on for months, and then you're done with all that so getting back to living your normal life is uh, obviously really important. And so we have a whole team of people who focus on those various uh, other issues as well.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask if you can tell us about the palliative surgical procedures you do for patients with pancreatic cancer.
2: Yeah, so, so the uh, pancreatic cancer can um, block. The uh, drainage of the stomach, and so uh, people can have trouble with nausea and vomiting, and so sometimes we have to uh, create a, a bypass um, so that food can get from the stomach down into the um, downstream gastrointestinal tract. So we will do a procedure to uh, create an opening uh, between those two areas so that patients can eat again. Um, and the same thing can happen in the in the bile duct. The, the, the tumor can can, can block the, the bile duct. And, uh, and sometimes uh, surgery can be used to, to, to bypass um, the, the blockage as well. Um, what's more common uh, for the blockage in the, in the bile duct is um, to have a stent put in uh, with an endoscope that can that, that can avoid surgery and keep the, the bile flowing uh, from the liver in, into the intestine. Um, Another symptom that's relatively common in pancreatic cancer is back pain because the tumor can infiltrate into nerves um, uh, that um, can cause back pain. And so uh, nerve blocks can be very effective at, at controlling that, um, uh, as can radiation. But, but most people do quite well with just a, just a nerve block.
0: Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate your time. Thank you to Dr. Thomas Vandermeer. He's the chief of surgical oncology and he specializes in pancreatic cancer at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: Dr. Peter Cronkright is an associate professor of internal and family medicine here at Upstate Medical University. He gave us a poem that reminds us we have come through medically and socially challenging times before. His poem, Making Rounds, gives physicians in particular a reason to hope. Making rounds. Virus taking hold, calling the shots. Truth be told, don't sleep a lot, scary. Distance and hygiene not enough, where to lean, times are tough, memory. Having learned at rapid pace, classroom turned face to face, flurry. Am I ready for the call? Remain steady, exposed to all, reality. Long white coat serves as shield, carrying notes, virus revealed, deadly. Gather round foot of the bed. Stand your ground while it spreads. Worry, point fingers, so much unknown. Panic lingers, our limits shown, sorry. Intern year, 83. Lots to fear, HIV, history. James McCaig is a physician and writer from Pittsburgh. His poem, Contagion, is similarly eerie in that we do not know what disease we are facing. Contagion. The mask becomes you, so he said, and could not see her smile. It's probably your eyes, he said. Lips often are disguise. It was a yellow hospital mask with a center stain of red, betraying lipstick she earlier had nonetheless put on. By now, she felt a warming blush extending up her face, and she wondered if it would peek over the mask's edge like an early dawn over a horizon. And so she stood there, like Juliet on the balcony, six feet or so away.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new biography explores one of Upstate's most famous graduates. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.